Listeners, I'm afraid I must inform you of an extremely unfortunate event. Several of them, in fact. So many that we've decided to create a podcast to chronicle them all. But if you're interested in well-produced podcasts with celebrity guests, you would be better off listening to something else. There will be no famous people on this show, and only the cheapest editing software will be used. There won't even be a Squarespace ad. For those of you brave enough to stay, welcome to our perilous podcast discussing a series of unfortunate events by Lemony Snicket. Welcome to Not-So-Young Adults, where two former teens try to recapture the glory days of their youth by discussing their favorite YA books to discover exactly what makes them so timeless. I am Spencer, and as always, I am joined by my lovely co-host and our resident librarian in training, Jessica. Hi, it me. Hello, Jess. How are you today? You know, I'm I'm pretty good. Um Yeah. Yeah, how are you? Great. We just went to the Ren Fair. We did. Saw a lot of wenches. Including me. The best wench. Thank you. Thank you. The winning wench. Saw a lot of barbarians, actually. Yeah, it was. Barbarian weekend. It was quite frightening. I'm not going to lie. I thought I was going to get pillaged any second. (laughs) But it was a lot of fun. Yeah, no, it was a great time. And I feel completely refreshed after having slept for 12 hours last night. And I feel exactly the opposite after going out after that and then waking up early. For work. Insane. But we're here. We both managed to get into the closet to start recording. And so let's just get into it. Yeah. We are continuing our coverage of the series of unfortunate events with book five. I can't believe we're already at book five. I know. This is insane. And that book is called The Austere Academy. One of my favorite titles and honestly one of my favorite books in the whole series. Oh. This is one I remember like the most. I remember so many weird details about this one from reading it uh, originally. Okay. Uh, but we'll get into that. We'll talk about it. So, Jess, could you start us off by reading the book's dedication? You'll never guess who it's to. Mm, I think I can. Oh. For Beatrice, you will always be in my heart, in my mind, and in your grave. So good. It is simple yet heartbreaking. I wonder if like Snicket's family and loved ones are a little annoyed that none of them get to have a book dedication because he decided to do this bit instead. Well, I mean, Snicket is a made-up persona. Don't you say that. Don't you say that to me. (laughs) Okay. It's real to me, man. Real to me. Let's get into this recap. All right. Get ready, you guys, because, oh, this is a frustrating book. (laughs) (laughs) So here we go. After surviving Count Olaf child labor, and several guardians of varying quality, the Baudelaire children face their most daunting and horrifying challenge yet, boarding school. Mr. Poe has brought the children to Proof... 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 What? Proof Rock. Thank you. I think so. Mr. Poe has brought the children to Proof Rock Preparatory School. Preparatory... Prep... God. Oh, this is going to be rough. Mm. Mr. Poe has brought the children to Proof Rock Prep School. And as the Bolulares look out at the sea of children running around in a field of underwatered grass, they experience an unpleasant feeling. They had, of course, experienced many unpleasant feelings since their parents had died, but for the first time, the Bolulares felt shy. 
This feeling was made worse as they passed the school's gates, bearing the academy's motto, Memento Mori, a Latin phrase which means, remember, you will die. Which, honestly, if this turned out to just be like goth high school, that's really cool. Yes, but it does seem a little ominous. Yeah, but, you know, it could be fun. But it's still uh, way less unsettling than the lumber mill sign. Easily. Yeah, that's true. That is very true. And speaking of, why did Poe think to send the children to a lumber mill before a boarding school? Yeah. Like, how did that sequence of events happen? Yeah. Or perhaps, well, because I know your sir, um, I think maybe he put it in his mind because he was planning on sending the kids to school. Yeah, maybe. I don't really know. But also, do orphanages not exist in this world? Perhaps not. Because <laughs> it seems like the obvious answer to a lot of this. Right. <laughs> Well, the children go to meet their new guardian, Vice Principal Nero. Probably the most infuriating character in this whole series, yeah, if I not all of literature. I, I can't stand him. He is unbearable, in just in text. Like, yeah. just reading him, it, honestly, it's an achievement by Snicket, like how annoying he made a character. <laughs> well, Nero's easily also the strangest looking person the children have ever seen. He wore a wrinkled brown suit with a necktie patterned with pictures of snails. He had a tiny cherry red nose at the center of his blotchy face, and he was completely bald except for four tufts of hair, which he had tied into pigtails. Just so bizarre. Weird look. Like, it's so hard to even picture. It is. Um, He paired his strange appearance with an atrocious personality. Nero was childish, cruel, narcissistic, and most of all, completely delusional about his ability to play the violin, which the children had mistaken earlier for the sound of a small animal being tortured. He'd also had the infuriate, and I mean infuriating, infuriating, habit of mimicking what other people say in a high-pitched voice. So, for example, Spencer, say something. Hello, Jess. How are you? Hello, Jess. How are you? All the time. Like, constantly. no matter what they say to him, he just mocks just them that. back. I cannot. It's unbearable at times. <laughs> Once he was finished mocking his new students, Nero explained that the school's explained the school's many ridiculous rules and cruel punishments. More on those later. He also informs them that since they don't have a signed permission slip from a parent to live in the dormitory, they will live in the school's orphan shack. Tragic. And since Sunny is too young to attend the academy, she will instead work as Nero's secretary. Now her second job. Yeah, what is up with this? This is a wild, just a wild place. (laughs) Oh, I can't wait to talk about it later. Finally, Nero assures the children that they have no reason to worry about Count Olaf since the school had a computer that would stop him from setting foot on campus. How the computer would actually accomplish this is not clear. Also, the computer really muddles the time period we're in. This is where really just like now we have no idea where we're at. Well, you know, I remember being in kindergarten and that's when my school got its first computer lab because I had signed up to be a part of like the crew that would clean the computers every Friday. Yeah, it's just also people are like driving around in Model Ts in this world. It's just weird. It's just it's very back and forth. It's I mean, you know, some would say it's uh, fictional. Don't ever say that to me again. <laughs> the children go to the orphan shack and find that it is somehow even worse than the name implies. The small tin building consisted of one room with three bales of hay for beds. The shack was also infested with small crabs that would pinch anyone who came near. 
The walls were painted a sickly green color and decorated with tiny pink hearts and dripping tan fungus grew from the ceiling. I tried my best to identify the species of fungus. I could not get anything definite. Most I, fungi kind of sound like this. Right. So <laughs> it was hard to like narrow something down. But apparently it wasn't dangerous. It was just gross. Yeah. Sadly, life for the Baudelaire's wasn't much better outside of the shack. During the day, they faced constant torment from the school bully, Carmelita Spatz, who loved mocking them just for the fact that they were orphans. Cruel. Not great person. And every night, they were forced to sit through a six-hour violin <laughs> concert by Nero. Heavy quotes on concert. Right. Mostly just a audio torture session. Yeah, like he would play like a 30-minute song like 12 times over. Yeah, and again, heavy quotes around the word song right. there. <laughs> Violet's, Violet's teacher, Mr. Ramora, spent every class telling boring, pointless stories, which for some reason usually involved him eating a banana, mm. and would then quiz them on the most minute details. While Klaus's teacher, Mrs. Bass, would spend the entire class making orphans measure dimensions of various objects, as she was an avid fan of the metric system. As are we, but not that big of fans. Not that big of fan. The lone bright spot in the children's lives were their new friends, Duncan and Isidore Quagmire. The Quagmires and Baudelaire's initially bonded over their mutual disdain for Camp Carmelita Spats, but soon learned that they had quite a bit in common. Like the Baudelaire's, the Quagmires had been orphaned after losing their parents in a house fire. They were also heirs to a large family fortune, the Quagmire Sapphires. Duncan and Isadora appeared to be twins, sharing the same dark black hair and expressive wide eyes. But they were actually a part of a set of triplets. But their brother, Quigley, tragically died in the same fire that took their parents. Poor Quigley Quagmire. Yeah, that's rough. And a great name. Yeah. The two triplets always carried... And that's just heartbreaking. The two triplets. like. Oh, yeah. We'll talk about it later. But it's a rough... It breaks my heart. The two triplets always carried notebooks with them wherever they went. Duncan used his book to take notes as he aspired to become a journalist one day, while Isadora used hers to write couplets, her signature style of poetry. One day, the Baudelaire's are introduced to the school's new gym teacher, Coach Genghis. Um, I believe the proper pronunciation is Genghis. We will not be adhering to that pronunciation on this show. Correct. Just putting that out there right now. Also, I would like for you to just visualize um, for me. This is how I always pictured him in this way. Genghis Uh, Khan or or the coach? No, no, no. The coach, I picture him as... (laughs) What's his name? Count Olaf. No, 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 I'm making a joke. Mm, but, it's, it's really, it's going great so hold far. On, hold on, we're going to have to cut this part, but. Oh, we are not. Uh, oh, you know it's going to be a good joke when you got to Google. <laughs> this is all real time, I'm not editing okay, any of this. So, okay, what I want you to picture is what I pictured uh, Coach Genghis as. <laughs> what is the name? <laughs> Jesus Christ, babe. <laughs> I'm, I'm cutting you out of the no. show. <laughs> oh, as, no, as Way- John Wayne playing Genghis Khan. Okay, let's redo that an entire bit. 
John Wayne. I couldn't think of his freaking name. All right. Well, you know, I picture, and I would like for all of you to picture Coach G- Genghis as John Wayne when he played Genghis Khan. Uh, an all-time performance. All-time YouTube John Wayne is Genghis Khan. <laughs> if you guys know how John Wayne speaks, he does not change anything about his Genghis Khan performance. No. He just is John Wayne with like a... Does he even have like a a, a mustache? Like what are they? I have no it's, idea. But it's terrible. I, YouTube it. It's a great time. <laughs> you return empty-handed from the chase, my son. Not so. Fine gazelle. How many markets did you observe? We'll take twice that number. Call Bagurchi and Savaya. Though he wore high-top sneakers to cover his tattoo and a turban, of all things, to hide his single eyebrow, the children instantly knew that the man was no other than Count Olaf. Every time he has a new disguise, I can't help but think, why doesn't he cover up the tattoo with makeup, too, like he did the first time, but that and would... just shave the eyebrow? But he's already done it, so he's got to do something different. I guess, but these people aren't hard to trick. Knowing that telling Nero would be useless, Violet convinces her siblings to pretend that they don't recognize Count Olaf, and order to buy themselves time to figure out his plan. Honestly, very smart move. I agree. At that night's violin concert, the Boulderlers tell the Quagmires about their history with Olaf. Despite the Boulderlers' protests, Duncan and Isadora promise to help them thwart Olaf's plan, whatever it may be. Claiming that orphans are naturally gifted runners, Coach Genghis is allowed to start a special athletics program for the Boulderlers, known as Special Orphan Running Exercises, or SOAR. That's a great name. I agree. The program consisted of nothing more than making the Baudelaire's run, or in Sonny's case, crawl, around a painted oval all night long. Literally the entire night. As miserable as the experience was, they couldn't figure out how it would help Olaf get their fortune. So they kept going to soar night after night, but even with Duncan and Isadora sneaking out to watch them, they were no closer to discovering Olaf's plan. The program soon began to take its toll on the children. Violet and Klaus's grades fall from being asleep half the time in class, and Sunny is unable to complete any of the work Nero assigns her. She was also hampered by the fact that she's a, a baby. Yeah, and she was also had to make, her, like, handmade staples. Yeah, that's, uh, yeah, which is a weird thing. That was one of the things I remembered from the series. Yeah. From reading as a kid that she has to, like, bend these tiny little metal rods into staples, which is just a bizarre And it also, image. okay, if you've ever worked with a stapler, you'll know that if you don't have a good staple, like, yeah. it's going to get jammed so quickly. Right. This just isn't feasible. There's just, just no way this is going to work out for anyone. <laughs> Nero calls the three children into his office and tells them that Klaus and Violet will have to pass a special comprehensive exam in each of their classes in order to pass. And Sunny also must staple a stack of Nero's papers using the aforementioned homemade staples in order to keep her job, which she's not being paid for. We I mean, say job, but forced child labor again (laughs) this back-to-back child labor we're dealing with if any of them failed their test they will all be kicked out of the academy but fortunate for them coach genghis has generously offered to homeschool the orphans should they fail Mm, now that they know olaf's plan the boulders and quagmires devise a way to stop him Duncan and Isadora offer to disguise themselves as Violet and Klaus with a bag of flour dressed as Sunny and participate in SOAR while the Baudelaire's prepare for their exams. After spending all night preparing, the siblings manage to pass their exams. However, 
just as they finish, Coach Genghis arrives and says that the Quagmires were impersonating the Baudelaire's. Yeah, this is not the best plan that the Baudelaire's have come up with. I, I don't know and why I, they thought this would work. I do wonder how long did it take, you know? My guess is Olaf knew immediately because how couldn't he? They right. were like dragging a bag of flour along them. <laughs> uh but then just let them go all night because he knew it wouldn't matter and he might as well just, you know, torture everyone while he has the chance. And he had to wait for Nero to come in the morning to reveal it anyway, so. <laughs> well, Nero considers this cheating and happily expels Violet and Klaus and fires Sonny. Man, fired from two jobs before she's even a toddler. That's a tough CV. Yeah, wh- where, what is this gap from? <laughs> yeah, you, you you didn't start working until you were of legal age. Um, and just as everything seemed to be lost, a sound rang out in the distance. Wait, wait, is that coughing I hear? <laughs> Why, yes, it's Mr. Povid here to do the bare minimum to save the day. <laughs> the children catch Poe up on what happened, and Poe kindly asks Coach Genghis to remove his running shoes, which causes Olaf to flee. The children chase after him, and thanks to their extensive cardiovascular training, they are able to keep up. Violet manages to grab his turban, unraveling it and revealing the unibrow hiding beneath, Mm. while Sonny unties his shoes, slipping them off and revealing his tattoo. I'm just trying to picture that, Yeah, I'm not seeing it. Yeah, that's a tough one. I don't know how that works out, but you know. (laughs) As you've claimed, this may or may not be real. Right. I would say I can picture it a little bit more than I could in the last episode with the sword tooth fight. <laughs> yes. This is I definitely more plausible than that scene. <laughs> yes. Well, just as the children are about to catch up to Olaf, he points towards the street across the lawn where two cafeteria workers were dragging Duncan and Isadora towards a long black car. The Baudelaire's recognized that the workers were actually the two powder-faced women who worked for Olaf. Klaus splits away to go to help them, but as he grabs Isadora, one of the powder-faced women bites his hand, causing him to let go. Klaus desperately pulls at the door handle, tugging back and forth with Olaf associates. As Klaus struggles to get the door open, Duncan tries to tell him a secret he discovered about Count Olaf, but one of the women covers his mouth before he can say it. Olaf arrives and knocks Klaus out of the way uh, knocks Klaus out of the way as he climbs into the car. Just before the door closes, Duncan frees himself from the woman's clutches for just long enough to get out one final message. V F D. What could that be? The car speeds away and the Baudelaire's collapse on the ground in tears. The adults argued about what to do next, but the Baudelaire's knew from experience that it didn't matter. By the time they decided on a plan, Olaf would be long gone. While the adult continued to argue behind them, the siblings pondered the meaning behind the quagmire's message. They looked up and noticed the school's gate and its motto, Memento Mori. They stared at the motto and vowed to each other that, before they died, they would solve the dark and complicated mystery that cast a shadow over their unfortunate lives. Oh, man, it's getting so good. It oh, really I'm is. so excited, man. <laughs> the next few books, it really starts getting interesting Ooh, with everything that's... Conspiracy? Uh, oh. Because I'm feeling conspiracy. Oh, just you wait. <sighs> well, speaking of future books, 
In our editor's note, Snicket instructs his editor to purchase a first-class one-way ticket on the second-to-last train out of the city, but to not board it. Once the train leaves, he will find a package containing one of Jerome's neckties, a small photograph of Veblen Hall, a bottle of parsley soda, and a doorman's coat, along with a copy of his next manuscript, The Erzatz Elevator. Mm-hmm. Oh, man. So exciting. Yes. Well, now that we know what happened, it's time to discuss our personal proclivities from this week's book. Ooh. And in the spirit of Lemony Snicket, we'll be covering our 13 unfortunate faves, facts, and findings. Starting with number one. As we brought up earlier, the Quagmires are will consider themselves to be triplets, which they are, obviously. Right. But I just, I love that so much because the Quagmires' insistence on being called triplets and not twins is it's both really tr- touching and incredibly sad. But it, it also works as a really great analogy for people's preferences for their gender pronouns, mm. which most characters in the story don't respect how the Quagmires feel and they call them twins. Right. And, but the Baudelaire's are able to, who are the only ones really able to empathize and understand them, do call them triplets and vehemently insist that others call them triplets as well. And I just I just find it's really beautiful and also just that's why people care about their pronouns because it's part of their identity. They don't right. want to lose their brother and that kinship, their, you know, like what yeah. they had, their yeah, relationship. They will always be triplets. Right. But I just, oh, I love that touch and I thought it was so beautiful and lovely and it's also just amazingly depressing makes me want to cry i know we won't get into it because i think we've mentioned plenty of times how we feel about the yeah the idea of uh uh triplets and and twins and whatnot losing one Uh, unthinkable Mm -hmm. well to turn this around there's a really funny moment towards the end of the book so number two when the baudelaires and quagmires are trying to figure out how to defeat olaf's scheme and to help, they all look to their idols for ideas. Violet wonders what the great inventor Thomas Edison would do. Duncan wonders what the great journalist Dorothy Parker would do. Klaus wonders what Hammurabi, the ancient Babylonian, would do. As I often do as well. And then Isadora wonders what the poet Lord Byron would do. And Sonny simply says, shark. Which <laughs> just cracks me up. Just Shark. <laughs> Which I do love. I feel like this um, book in particular, we're starting to see more words that Sunny is saying that actually apply to the situation and they're not like made up. Yes. Um, that's something I've re- you really start noticing. I'm a few books ahead mm-hmm. um, just for writing purposes and keeping up. So I won't reveal anything too much, but that's a trend that you really see. And I'd forgotten that from my original read back yeah. when I was a kid. But it's a really cool thing. You do slowly see her say more real words that are... you know relevant to the conversation right and listen i'm not necessarily one for babies not a big fan no no way what but i really like sunny she's so cute and funny she's funny she's fantastic (laughs) no and i just love all of their choices i think they're funny no they are and i can't speak for hammurabi or dorothy parker then but i i could probably guess lord byron would whatever the situation was he would try to have sex with it yeah, just, oh, for sure, for sure. It's what we know of Lord Byron. I, I, that's his go-to. He's just a horn dog. Speaking of names, with number three, a lot of name references that are very interesting in this book. So mm-hmm. first, our our new uh, good characters, Duncan and Isadora Quagmire, are, are named after 
Isadora Duncan, who is the inventor of modern American dance in the early uh, turn of the 20th century. And she famously died in a freak accident where her long scarf got caught in the wheel of a car she was in and it strangled her to death. Jesus. It's like a horrifying image. It's one of the craziest oh things. God. It's crazy that it actually happened, but that's where the name comes from. Morbid. Yeah, very, very dark. Um, and Nero, obviously, is a reference to Roman Emperor Nero, yeah. who was said to have fiddled while Rome burned during the Great Fire of Rome. Although... I'm sure a lot of you probably know that fiddles weren't even close to being invented by that time. <laughs> no. If anything, he'd be playing something called a sithara pronunciation, sorry, uh, which is like an early version of a lute. So uh, we, we didn't yeah, have a lute yet. that's probably more appropriate. Yeah. <laughs> we, we weren't even at lute technology, let alone violin tech. Um, also, there's speculation he probably wasn't in Rome when the fire started anyways. That makes sense. Because a lot of people blamed him for it. I mean, yeah, Nero historically was like an evil guy. He was like cruel emperor. Cruel which... and, and hedonistic and yeah. just gluttonous in every way yeah not a great guy <laughs> right so I, I wouldn't put it past him but he probably didn't start yeah. it for some reason i'm not even sure why all the teachers are named after fish mm. so we have mrs bass obviously mr remora which are those fish that famously hang on to the side of the sharks yes and um olaf uh, replaces the old gym teacher named miss tent so I didn't know that what that was. I assumed it was a fish based on the others, but uh-huh. it's a um, a European freshwater fish. Huh. It's much like the eel. You'll love this, Jess. Tenches excrete a slimy substance that has long been believed to be um, have medicinal properties, Ooh. Uh, giving it the common nickname of doctor fish. But I really prefer its scientific name, which is a tinka tinka. A tinka tinka. A tinka tinka. Which is just great. I love that. All time. It's up there with the black rat, radis, radis. Okay, of, yeah, yeah, Of yeah. Uh, scientific names. Radis, radis, that's also pretty good. And finally, we have Genghis, which Coach Genghis, like we said, is a reference to Genghis Khan, who is the former ruler of the largest continuous land empire in him- human history and the namesake of the fast casual restaurant chain, Genghis Grill. You ever been to Genghis Grill? I have. So it's not bad. I prefer Who Hot. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, number four. The this is the first book where no one explicitly dies. Wild. Miss Tench is said to have recently fallen out of a third story window, but her fate technically is not made clear. Yeah, so we don't know. She could she be alive. Just been severely injured. Knowing all, if he probably made sure she was dead, but nah. we don't know. Uh, number five. A line that really stuck with me from this book was after Violet warns the Quagmires not to, not to help them, and asks. The question, who knows what Coach Genghis will do to you, which is followed by the line, this, as it turned out, was a question that would haunt the Baudelaire's for quite some time. Which, oh, this just gives me chills. Yeah. And Ugh. and and you can imagine, like, they spent weeks, uh, like, in anticipation, like, walking on eggshells, trying to figure out what the hell this guy is going to do to them. And knowing like, what he's capable of. Yeah. Like, what's his plan? And and not being able to figure it out. And just, like, the, the dread and the anxiety that they're constantly living with is... Yeah. I imagine it must have been overwhelming. Well, and, and talk about the guilt they must be feeling now that the worst thing, yeah. worst scenarios happen. Literally, like they make their best friends and immediately lose them. <laughs> and they, I'm sure they blame themselves. Yeah, absolutely. It's rough, but that will, we will get more on that in books to come. Excellent. 
Well, number six, a list of the many strange school rules. We mentioned it earlier, but one is if anyone is late to class, their hands are tied behind their backs during meals. Which, interestingly what? enough, I have done this before. Um, oh, you were late my, to class? Uh, no, no, no. I but I. Uh, at my Aunt Kate's house. Oh, that's an Aunt Kate move, yeah. Um, I, I once, me and my cousin, we flew up there alone, like, whenever I was 12 years old. And one time we were like, yeah, we're just going to eat dinner with no hands. And it was spaghetti. <laughs> but it was my cousin's boyfriend made the spaghetti, but he made it a little spicy. Ooh. Which I, now I probably would love, but yeah. it was spicy on our faces. <laughs> we were eating with just our mouths. And so, like, it ended up being, like, a little bit of an issue but a little bit yeah um another rule is if a student is late to the cafeteria their cups and glasses are taken away and the beverages are served in large puddles which is kind of just fun that's funny no that's just that's comedy <laughs> that's just a good time uh this is extra difficult as meals are served precisely at breakfast time lunch time and dinner time that is all that they that anyone is told about <laughs> when meals are served ambiguous <laughs> Um, another one, if a student goes to the administrative building without an appointment, they are forced to eat their meals without silverware. Which Sunny, even though it's her job to go and be near a secretary, it breaks that rule every day. Every and so day. she never gets silverware. But it's fine. She is a, a infant. If anyone, <laughs> yeah, she doesn't need it. If a student misses one of Nero's nightly six-hour violin recitals, they are forced to buy him a large bag of candy and watch him eat it. Which, again, with the SOAR program, the children miss the concert every night and are forced to give Nero candy, which, even though he approved it. And then also, Carmelita Spatz gives them the message every day that they have to go do the SOAR, and so Nero insists that they give her a gift as a thank you for... <laughs> as a tip. Yeah. They're like, oh, a, a pair of earrings with, like, gents, precious stones yeah. would suffice. Yeah. <laughs> with precious stones would suffice. <laughs> um, and then another one, Saturday and Sunday are regular school days, apparently in keeping with the school's motto. It's <laughs> such a weird line, just because it... In, because of the school's motto, we have school every day, which is just, what? Okay. <laughs> and the last one, everyone must clap and cheer for Nero when he enters a room. But usually this is preceded by Nero announcing himself. Yes. Like, ladies and gentlemen. Vice Principal Nero. What a dick. <laughs> Babe, we gotta, we gotta cut that. Oh, that's a was that another quarter? That's another quarter. Oh, uh, I I think I ended up having to cut it from the last episode, but because we are a uh, family friendly pod, despite all the death and suffering of children mm-hmm. that we're covering, mm-hmm. um, anytime we curse and I have to edit it out, we will add twenty five cents to our swear jar, and then once we get to the end of the series, let's say we'll donate all that to some kind of book related charity, yeah, or we'll. Put it in cash and hide it in a book at a random bookstore, whichever we feel like would be more fun. Yeah. Number seven, Brett Helquist, uh, the illustrator of all the books. His artwork is always fantastic, but I especially enjoyed some of the chapter drawings in this book, in particular chapter eight, which is this truly adorable image of Sunny napping in a salad. It's so cute. (laughs) It's so cute. It's it's really adorable. (laughs) I don't know why. Chapter nine, there's a really cool shot of the Baudelaire's running 
with the sunrise in the background. They almost look like ventriloqu- ventriloquist dolls. Yeah. In the way that they're kind of leaning over. Yeah, it's a really it's really hard to describe because it's all done in black and white. So the way he's drawing the streaks of shadows representing like the sunrise, and it's really cool. Uh, you'll have to check it out. Yeah. It's, um, it's a really great drawing. I don't even know like how he really did it. It's really cool. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's chapter 11, which is another cute image of the bag of flour that they disguised as Sunny. <laughs> so it's just a bag of flour they drew like teeth on and a little face. It is adorable. It's pretty cute. But my favorite is chapter 3, which is which has the orphan shack crabs at the bottom of the page under the text and then at the top it is the like fungus juice dripping. Mm-hmm. And when I see it to me it looks like a bunch of crabs like because they're all pinchers are up, so it looks like they're all like worshiping their fungal god. <laughs> and it's just I don't know. I thought it really cool. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> <laughs> they're praising the, the the juices of the fungus lord. Mm. Well, number eight. This was the last audiobook to be read by Lemony Snicket, and the rest were done by Tim Curry, which is a great choice. Uh, I do choice. love Tim Curry. Yeah, because they redid the first one. I think with like a they did like a special full cast reading of the book where all the characters had like different voice actors and Tim mm-hmm. Curry did Olaf but then they at this point they just had him take over the whole series which is probably for the best that's just a great choice yeah I agree number nine when trying to figure out coach Genghis's plan Klaus disappointingly disappointingly reveals that he's only read three or four books on paint I honestly I just expected more from him uh, yeah by his age I'd read at least a dozen paint books I, I mean I have at least four three or four books that oh, have to yeah. do with paint Definitely. in my house right now. That doesn't even count how many I've actually read. Well, and we're not, that's not even mentioning how much paint you just eat Yeah, day to day. All the time. And I, I try to get it to stop, I'm telling you. but Who needs ketchup when I have red, red paint? paint. <laughs> <laughs> Number 10, I love the little touch of the school preparing insane quantities of food. It's so funny. It, and, it, and it reminds me of um, my hometown Pasadena has mm-hmm. like the strawberry festival every year and they make a gigantic uh, strawberry shortcake. Oh, that's awesome. Which actually tastes pretty freaking good. I love but, that stuff. Um, <laughs> the cafeteria here is said to have a lasagna the size of a dance floor, <laughs> a salad, this the salad bowl the size of a pickup truck, and a mountain of garlic bread, which I would require oh, means- on a regular basis. Uh, yeah, I, I would uh, need to be restrained. Yeah. <laughs> Stop just diving into it like Scrooge McDuck. Uh, And it's all served by workers whose faces are hidden behind metal masks. Yeah, it's weird. They don't really describe what that means, but they're like these cage masks. I imagine them kind of like gladiator masks, but it's very weird. I can't, and there's no illustration that I've seen that shows it, so I'm not quite sure what that's supposed to be. Again, another just, this whole book is a very weird imagery. That's, I don't know, it's baffling sometimes. Yeah. But again, we talk about all the time, but the way Snicket exaggerates aspects of childhood and like, yeah, like you remember going to school where they just had these, you know, these giant pasta dishes or whatever that would serve you. And I just love that the extremity, the extremity? No. Extremity? How extreme it is. Like just have these (laughs) giant, like insane quantities of food. It's very fun. No, it is. Number 11, speaking of fun, this may just become a running segment. I love the book translation titles. From Wikipedia here. Uh, in Italian, the book is known as The Atrocious Academy, which is pretty mm-hmm. one-to-one. Yeah, that's good. Norwegian is The Terrible School, a little dull. Yeah. 
Spanish is a very austere academy. Well, I do want to say, go back to the Norwegian. Is mm-hmm. it an alliteration in Norwegian? Not a prob- I think so. I think that's the difference for that one. Okay, got it. I believe that's what they're going for. I don't know that for a fact, but I kind of think that's the idea. Gotcha. So it probably sounds better there, but it's just a funny translation. It's like, yeah, it's a no, bad that's school. Silly. <laughs> uh, in Finnish, it's a weird school. <laughs> I also really like that and one. Two, I can't decide which of these I like more. Uh, in the Polish, it's the Academy in, of Antipathy, which is just fun. That is good. That's I love good that. One. And Russian, it's the Bigoted Boarding House. <laughs> I, I don't bigoted know, indeed, I it, I, I guess it is. I never thought of it that way. <laughs> uh, number 12, at the beginning of chapter four, hey y'all, we get a small hint about the fate of Beatrice the mysterious woman who's been the subject of all of Snicket's dedications. He tells us about a triptych, a type of painting consisting of three panels, that a friend made him. Quote, he painted fire on one panel, a typewriter on another, and the face of a beautiful, intelligent woman upon the third. The triptych is entitled, What Happened to Beatrice? And I cannot look upon it without weeping. Oh, so good. Perhaps the Baudelaire's and Quagmire's aren't the only people in this story to lose a loved one in a tragic fire. Seems to be a bit of a theme. Yes. Beatrice was also mentioned in Chapter 11 when Snicket describes being at a masquerade. So basically, he's described himself being at a masquerade and uh, sneaking in. The security Mm -hmm. guards are chasing after him and he says, quote, as my pursuers scurried around the party trying to guess which guest was me, I slipped out to the veranda and gave her the message I've been trying to give her for 15 long and lonely years. Beatrice, I cried, just as the scorpion spotted me. Count Olaf is... Mm. And he stops it there. And so it makes me wonder, mm-hmm. you know, so her disappearance, maybe her death, this whole story, something to do with Count Olaf and maybe why he is doing research into the Baudelaire's. Yeah, because this kind of changes the angle of what who Snicket is in this story. Yes. He's, it, but first, he sounds like he was just a journalist. He was just documenting this story. But he was in these dangerous situations, he would hint at. But now he's directly involved in the story with Count Olaf in some way. So he's much more a part of the story than we originally thought. So that's very interesting. It's a great pickup to choose that one. Because really, yeah, Snicket as a character is much different than you kind of think at the beginning. Right, exactly. And I can't help but um, think there's another part in the book where the Quagmires are talking about doing research into maybe things that mm-hmm. Count Olaf has done in the past. Um, and I'm they mention a few specific ones, and I'm wondering if any of them might have to do with Lemony Snicket and what happened to Beatrice. Yeah, it's really starting to seem like it is. And on top of that, I love the choice to make Beatrice not Snicket's wife or partner or whatever, that he, on top of this tragedy, he is also has this unrequited love that adds this really tragic layer to it. It reminds me of, uh, there's a a word for it, but it's back in like, I think 1700, 1800s, people, there's a lot of poets, a big thing about doing poetry for this like unrequited love and like this, the capital R romantic Mm -hmm. kind of storytelling. And that was like a big thing of lusting after someone you've like never really met like kind of like Dante's Inferno like it's all about the story of revolving around actually it's very similar now I think about it uh but Dante's Inferno if you guys don't know it's 
this guy going through the layers of hell, but then also um, purgatory and heaven. But those are boring. No one reads those. But he's it started by like there's this like mystery woman that he's lusting after that like kind of guides him. But, but it was a real woman, but he never actually met her. He like just knew her or some distantly. Yeah. It, so it's kind of like that. It's really interesting. It adds an extra really big romance layer to it right. in a way the and, and gothicness that, and it's not even that like it was his cowardice that kept him from interacting with her yeah in this quote he literally says he he's like he's not been allowed to speak to her for yeah the rest of his life and uh, another quotes kind of hint that that like she was with someone else and like she just didn't either didn't love him or didn't really know him like he knew her mm. so it's kind of confusing it's muddled right now but it's very interesting much more interesting than you think and there's already a great style for the story of this author who's really involved and has like these crazy adventures. But now it's getting like really intense and juicy. It's so good. I'm yeah. so excited for these next few books. Ugh. It just keeps getting better. Can't wait. And so finally, as always, we close out with the book's literary references. Not quite as many this week, but we have uh, Proof Rock Academy is likely a reference to the poem The Love Song of J. The Love Song of J. Alfred Prufrock by T.S. Eliot. Again, sorry for pronunciation. And uh, when Isadora mentions that she writes poetry, Sunny shrieks Sappho, which mm. is the name of a, f- a famous female Greek poet. Tangent alert, I fell down a rabbit hole. Yep. This is a long note I have here. <laughs> uh, so along with her poetry, Sappho is also famous uh, is also a famous lover of women. She's yes. m- she is remembered for being a lesbian, basically. And her home island of Lesbos is where we get the name lesbian. And interestingly, Charles Baudelaire, the protagonist's namesake, wrote a poem titled Lesbos, and it came in his most famous poetry collection. Apologies ahead of time, Le Fleur du Mal, the mm. Flowers of Evil. Great name. That is good. Oh, I want to start a band called The Flowers of Evil. But it was originally going to be titled Lesbians, but in French, assumedly. Uh, But his poems would later get him persecuted as an outrage à bonne an insult to public decency. Mm. And the poems with the references... The poems with references to lesbianism were banned until 1949. Wow. Took World War II for them to be okay with That's lesbian insane. poems. <laughs> wow. But his depictions of female homosexuality they weren't great. They were pretty groundbreaking, but it was a bit problematic. Pretty progressive for the time, but he also kind of didn't have great views on lesbians and women in general. You know, just because... You know, it was that time. Right. Lesbianism was seen as kind of like barbaric or whatever. Mm. I don't know. We don't need to get into that. Uh, But uh, some fans speculate that Sonny saying Sappho is a hint that Isidora is either gay or bisexual. And while this has never been confirmed, according to her trading card, Isidora's favorite book is Le Fleur du Mal by Charles Baudelaire. So I think there is a... A little fire with that smoke there. Hmm. So that was fun. I unfortunately started going down this rabbit hole while I was at work uh, when I had nothing to do. And so I was on (laughs) pages of uh, (laughs) uh, lesbian literature. I was like, I should probably not do research. Yeah, maybe not at work. (laughs) Not right now. (laughs) Um, And then finally, the um, original U.S. cover of this book featured Vice Principal Nero standing over the Baudelaire's, which is a clear reference to a famous image from Oliver Twist. Where he's oh. like, can I have some more, sir? And he's like, more. Uh. 
you're poor. How dare you ask for porridge? And so by Charles Dickens. So that's it for our literary references. Excellent. Now that we've got our personal proclivities out of the way, it's time to get a little deep and take a journey down the road of pretension where we take a look at this story and figure out what makes it so dang good. Mm. And this episode will be keeping things short and sweet, but of course not really because I can't, (laughs) as we discuss the poetry style of couplets. All right. Had a lot of fun with this one. It was way more interesting than I thought it was going to be. So uh, as we learned from Isadora, a couplet is a poem consisting of two lines, either on their own or as part of a larger stanza in a poem. And typically the two lines consist of the same meter and they form a rhyme, but not always. There's a whole thing of like unrhyming couplets and I'm like at what point are those just sentences but (laughs) anyways despite their simplicity couplets come in several different styles and forms one of the most popular and famous is the heroic couplet which consists of pairs of rhyming lines written in iambic pentameter for people who were asleep or have friends in English class iambic pentameter is it just means that each line there are five stressed and five unstressed syllables and they alternate. So, shall I compare thee to a summer's day? That's the rhythm of it. Like a, like a stair step. Thing. Yeah. Supposedly, it, it's supposed to follow the cadence of a human heart and that's why it's popular in poetry. Uh, I don't know how true that is. Very interesting. I actually just recently told one of my coworkers, taught him about iambic pentameter and oh. he said, how do you know that? <laughs> <laughs> You're a science teacher. Why do you know that? <laughs> <laughs> so these heroic couplets are usually closed or formal, which just means that each line is its own complete sentence. But really what distinguishes a heroic couplet is its content. As heroic couplets are used to tell epic stories of heroes, war, chivalry, and love, and the couplet's fast-paced, kind of punchy rhythm makes them perfect for these longer stories, keeps the pacing up, and so that's why they really became huge. Originally, no one knows who came up with this, obviously, but they date back to the 14th century with Chaucer's Canterbury Tales, and was then later popularized popularized in the 16th and 17th centuries with our boy Billy Shakespeare Mm -hmm. and later by John Dryden and Alexander Pope who used the form in their translations of ancient Greek texts were hugely popular at the time. They kind of revived these ancient stories in this new kind of fun fast way. Sounds fun. It's kind of like a remix. Okay. Where you put in like a trap beat to a song you you didn't like but now it's cool. (laughs) I want the kids to relate. Really badly. Mm. Shakespeare was especially good at utilizing couplets for dramatic effect. Often his plays featured couplets and famous, you know, as we all know, a lot of I am a pentameter. But he would often end his sonnets with a couplet with a different rhyme scheme than to the rest of the poem. And this acted as like an exclamation point to really drive home the core idea of the poem. And so, for example, let's look at his most famous sonnet, number 18, which... You don't know, you know it, but you know it. You know uh, it. Um, the poem follows a classic alternating rhyme pattern. So A, B, A, B, C, D, C, D, you know, etc. Except for the final two lines, which rhyme with each other. So, shall I compare thee to a summer's day? Thou art more lovely and more temperate. Rough winds do shake the darling buds of May, and summer's leaves half all too short a date. Sometime too hot the eye of heaven shines, and often is his gold complexion dimmed, 
and every fair from fair some time declines by chance of nature's changing courts untrimmed. But thy eternal summer shall not fade, nor lose possession of that fair thou owest, nor shall death brag thou wanderest in his shade, when in eternal lines to time thou growest. So long as men can breathe or eyes can see, so long lives this and this gives life to thee. Mm. I know, pretty sexy, guys. <laughs> but it might have been hard with my mediocre performance of it, but changing the rhyme scheme at the very end catches the reader's attention. And it's kind of like in a song when there's a key change or a breakdown or even like a bridge. It's kind of gets you back into it and it really punctuates the last two lines and makes them special and keeps it in your brain. Yeah. There's some less famous couplet styles like the Elgiac and Common Meter couplets, which are kind of like heroic couplets, but with different meters and rhyme schemes. And there's also the split couplets, which use iambic pentameter in the first line and iambic diameter in the second. For example, there's Richard Steer's poem, On a Sea Storm Nigh the Coast. The weighty seas are rolled from the deeps in mighty heaps. Oh, I see. You I know, see. So you kind of change the diameter at the end. Yeah. It's kind of fun, right? That is. Everyone's so excited right now. I can, <laughs> I can feel our audience just like, oh my God, they're probably shouting and clapping. Uh, but some of you may actually be surprised to learn that there are people who speak languages that are not English. <laughs> and in some of those languages, they also have their own styles of couplets. And Chinese couplets are single individual poems made for special occasions, and they're often displayed around doorways during New Year's to wish for good luck and prosperity and all that stuff. Mm. And in the Middle East, there is the Kwasida, Yasida, so sorry, Q-A-S-I-D-A, if you want to look it up, and I'm sure you do. But it's a type of poem consisting of a series of rhyme couplets that are all rhyme with each other, which is popular in Arabic, Persian, and Turkish literature. And like heroic couplets, the Yasidas are epic narrative poems, sometimes containing over a hundred couplets, which are known as shears. It's actually really cool. There's a lot of great history with it. Uh, I won't go into it now for brevity's sake. Yes, I did cut stuff out. Uh, but however, the main focus today will be on a much simpler style of couplet, and that is the very unpoetic sounding distich, <laughs> which is a poem consisting of two rhyming lines of formal verse. Okay, so to be honest, the distinction between what makes something a distich and what is just a single couplet is kind of muddled and they're used interchangeably a lot online. So I struggled to get a clear answer on like how distinct they are from each other, which I only bring up because at one point I ended up on a website called Encyclopedia, the Free Dictionary, with its definition of a distich, it came with a rather unique warning. I've never seen this before. It says, quote, the following article is from the Great Soviet Encyclopedia of 1979. It may be outdated or ideologically biased, which no kidding, I'm sure it was. I mean, yeah, to be fair, I would like to know if I was reading something that might be Russian propaganda. I would too. A good hint is if it's on Facebook, it probably is. Ooh, got him. Got him. But ultimately, I'm going with how it's defined by LitCharts, which is a very well-researched um, site for this kind of thing that I use for a lot of our shows. That's how they define a distich as this separate thing, so I'm going with them. They seem smart. Anyways, the distich is, of course, the style of poetry preferred by, be preferred by Isadora Quagmire. The first example we get of her writing is a lovely tribute to a fellow student. <laughs> 
I would rather eat a bowl of vampire bats than spend an hour with Carmelita Spats. How big are vampire bats? I have to ask Ozzy Osbourne. <laughs> How big is that bowl? <laughs> <laughs> so couplets are a really good choice for a series aimed at younger readers as they're succinct and easy to understand and importantly to remember. I can confirm this because I could still recite that Carmelita Spatz poem like a decade after reading these books as a kid. <laughs> I could not remember who was saying it or why, but like I've had that in my head ever since I read it. I just think about it all the time. How I, silly. I don't know why. It's a weird thing. But, you know, that's kind of the power of having a very simple, catchy little hook it's in true. your poem. Yeah. And so the rhythm and the simple rhyme scheme also allows some kind of advice, playfulness. So take, for example, a couplet from the famous children's author, poet, Shel Silverstein. I have the measles and the mumps, a gash, a rash, and purple bumps. That's just fun. That is fun. It's a fun thing to say. And it kind of makes you think of, like, play, you know, playground rhymes and th- you know, dumb things you would say. Like, but that's not to say that couplets can't cover more serious topics. Some of Emily Dickinson's most evocative work comes in the form of couplets. Uh, one of my favorites of hers is... In this short life that only lasts an hour, how much, how little is within our power. That's a good one. Which, like, man, how much she says in two sentences. Yeah. Like, like oh, that's so good. Very true. It gives me goosebumps. It kind of reminds me of those, like, ten-word horror stories you see online every now and then. Yes. Because <laughs> there's just something so, like, powerful about a complex message being delivered, like, so efficiently yeah. and directly. And who was phone? And who was phone? <laughs> Exactly. That was not short. (laughs) No. Uh, But not to uh, compare myself to great poets like Emily Dickinson or Isadora Quagmire, but I once did a challenge where I wrote a poem for every day of a year. Mm, Yeah. And the only one I could like really remember fully is a rhymed couplet I wrote after Tumblr decided to ban nudity uh, on its site. And it goes, we mean no malice. We mean no scorn. All we want is our Tumblr porn. I remember that one. I think that was my favorite one I wrote. I think that's when I peaked. (laughs) Which they brought it back. Yeah, they did. Bit too late, I would say. I would as well. Well, Well, maybe with Twitter going down. We'll see how it goes. We may be going back to Tumblr here soon. I wouldn't be too upset. Nah. Uh, So couplets are short and effective and easy to write, but I think there's another specific reason that Snicket made Isadora write couplets. It has to do with something it has to do with something he says in a different part of the book. Quote, as they stood in the library with the quagmire triplets, the world felt smaller and safer than it had for a long, long time. I I love that idea of like the world feeling smaller. Yeah, no, exactly. And that's the thing with the Baudelaire's, they're by this book, their lives have become so chaotic and complex in all these different ways. And for them, you see why Safety and comfort would be synonymous with simplicity and smallness. You know, the uncomplicated comfort of friendship is such a luxury to them that they haven't enjoyed since their parents died. Like, except for like brief moments with Uncle Monty and um, Justice Strauss. Right. Who also married her off to Olaf. (laughs) So like, that's not like a great memory. So, but I just... The quagmires make their world feel small and easy and even a little bit silly and fun when they joke about the Carmelita Spatz poem and they get to have fun for the first time. And I think that is a feeling that is so perfectly captured in the simple joy of a good couplet. I like that a lot. 
Thanks. That's very well put. Thank you. And I'm reminded of a couplet of Taylor Swift's. Oh. That really punches me hard. And it is in a bridge. Mm. Which you love a bridge. I love a bridge. Especially I mean, Taylor's. Taylor, she, Taylor's a master bridge writer. She is so good at writing bridges. Did she go to architect school? Because she can make a hell of a bridge. She really, she really can. But the one that I was thinking of, actually, because it always gets me, but it's um, living for the thrill of hitting you where it hurts. Give me back my girlhood. It was mine first. I also love that line. That's a great line. It's so painful. Uh, it's so good. It is a great one. Apparently, Shake It Off, part of it is in iambic pentameter, but reading it, I couldn't like make it work in my head, so I cut it out, but Shake It Off, Shake, Shake, Shake It, it's like that part, so I'm just going to shake it. No, it, it's, I'm just going to shake it, shake, 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 it's like that, but I could not for the life of me get it to like make sense in my head, but apparently that's like what school teachers use to teach iambic pentameter nowadays. Because it's what? yeah, it's weird, and I'm like, is it though? If she's just saying like shake it a bunch, like I don't know if that like counts yeah, in my brain. Yeah, I think I might. As much as I love T Swizzle, I think I might have to. Um... It's a bit of a stretch. Yeah. Yeah. What What are we about to do? Soar? Because that's it's a lot of stretching. <laughs> okay. So with that hilarious joke, we are going to take a break. Yeah. All right, and we're back, and don't worry, everyone, I am done talking, or at least yelling. Right. Now on to the YA Information Station, where Jessica will take over and talk about a subject of her choosing, giving us some flavor, some background into some of the stuff talked about in this book, and I am so excited for your topic, I can't wait. Thank you. Okay, well, I hope I do it justice. So, hey, y'all, it's me. Yes. I know Spencer called me Jessica earlier, but that was incorrect. Sorry. Yeah, that was not your preferred pronoun. Thank you. Um, Or noun. (laughs) So uh, this week I'm going to talk a little bit about the motto of Proof Rock Prep Academy, which is Memento Mori. Memento Mori. We're all going to (laughs) die. So cool. (laughs) So, okay, basically, as Spencer said, it's Latin for remember that you will die. And as is usual with Lemony Snicket, almost everything is a reference to something else. And this case is no different. So many of you might not know, but Memento Mori is actually a trope seen in art and literature all throughout history. It has its roots in antiquity and various religions and conveys a reminder that Death is inevitable. In Christ- what? It's inevitable. Not for me. No, just oh, wait. Ju- uh, just you wait. Oh, no. <laughs> In Christianity, the phrase is meant to mean that we should turn our attentions away from earthly concerns and desires and instead towards the afterlife. But we even see this concept expanded on often in modern fantasy. So this is me bringing in the whole uh, YA part of it. But in modern fantasy where humans are turned into fae or vampires or some other supernatural immortal creature. Or in sci-fi where science evolves far enough to allow humans extended lifespans or the ability to live indefinitely. And these stories often seek to answer the question, what is it inherently that makes us human? And what do we become without mortality? Old. Right. But 
what does that do? Like, that essentially is what makes us humans, after all. Other types of artwork depicting Memento Mori include the dance macabre. Yes, the dance macabre. Jingle jangle, here comes Jeff to have a little waltz. (laughs) Now, the dance macabre is essentially a type of artwork from the late Middle Ages, which consists of death, or the personification of death, usually showing people from all walks of life, from kings to the clergy to a beggar to children, dancing to their deaths. In the late Middle Ages, it's, of course, 48 to, like, 52. Oh, come on. Ah, you got got him. Um, And so this is done in a way to remind the audience not to dwell on the vain distractions of earthly life because all of us will end up dead in the end, and we take nothing with us into the afterlife. YOLO is a modern equivalent to Momentum. It really is. (laughs) (laughs) So we see this concept all throughout human history, but one time period may stand out from the rest with the overwhelming amount of Memento Mori artwork that came about as a result of bearing witness to mass death of all the people around you. Do you want to take a guess? COVID. No? Oh, could it be the plague? Of course. The Bring black in the rats. Death. Yes. The miasma that will get us all. <laughs> so, yeah, it's the plague that caused about 30 to 50 percent of Europe's entire human population to die off within a period of like two years. Which COVID really put into perspective to me, like how crazy the Black Plague must have been. Because what we didn't even lose like one percentage point of the population with covid not right. to downsize the tragedy and the mass death that right, caused but it I mean, but consider... like like and how it upended all of our lives and just i couldn't imagine like just whole towns are wiped out like just the scale of it i got such a perspective on now that i can't even fathom what it must have been like it's insane and no wonder they got a bit dark Yeah, exactly. So as you may expect, survivors of the Black Death were absolutely traumatized. Yeah. Thus resulting in an an outpouring of artwork depicting motifs of death. Oftentimes you'll see skulls or bones or coffins, candles, Mm -hmm. hourglass, wilting flowers, you know, just, you know, common... It's the stuff on the posters in that goth girl you're you're into in her apartment. Exactly, exactly. It's all the cool things. Yeah, it's all the dope <laughs> stuff. It's like the coolest stuff. Yeah. And so you It comes would... from intense trauma. Yeah, exactly. Don't you feel weird buying those tarot cards now? Exactly. <laughs> and and oftentimes, so I did say Memento Mori is kind of Memento Mori rooted in Christianity as well, but a lot of the artwork you might see from uh, the times just following the Great Death, (laughs) the the Black Plague. Mm -hmm. um, The Big Owl. Yeah, would be maybe even turning away from Christianity. Well, that was a huge thing. There was a lot of loss of faith because all the clergy either died with everyone else or could do nothing to protect people or they all ran off and exactly. like tried to escape because they were the people of means. So it really screwed up the entire social order. But it's, yeah, with the religion especially, like the idea of that they had anything to, to offer people when push came to shove was, right. was clearly now a lie. Yeah, and so and so you're having to deal with not only the fact that we're all going to die, but Christianity kind of puts it in this vein of why we should turn away from these these earthly treasures that you see and like you're going to have a better afterlife and all this other stuff. And so it kind of grounds you in this, 
YOLOism. Yeah, and well, and <laughs> as the, in like this is the one life we have, and kind of. Well, and famously, people had so many treasures back then. They had their their <laughs> bale of hay. <laughs> right. They had their one tunic, some peas. Yeah, but I think it they people found comfort in this type of outpouring of these feelings that they're having and putting it into artwork. It's dark. At some point, you just got to lean in. Right, exactly. Nothing's going to make it better, so just enjoy being traumatized. Exactly. (laughs) To an extent. Uh, So, uh, personally, this is my favorite trope seen in art, and I think it's also why I have such a great appreciation for art referencing structures and motifs from Christianity as well because it's all it's all rooted in this idea that we humans are all united and that we all die and that is to say the unifying theme of humanity is mortality so why not embrace that until now but thanks to Mark Zuckerberg's meta we get to live forever in in a poorly rendered virtual reality dear god <laughs> there is no god in meta babe <laughs> But yeah, that that's just basically my little spiel on Memento Mori. Yeah, that's I'm, awesome. I'm curious to see because I feel like we didn't mu- we didn't get much of a reasoning behind that in this episode. I I'm think it was just if it continues or is it just a one off? Um, as far as like the books I've gone through, I don't think it's it, it hasn't come back. I don't think it's uh, going to be a running thing. I think it was just a goth like depressing thing to put in these books. Fair. I don't think it has that deep a message outside of the children's kind of proclamation at the end of the book. But it is definitely a very fitting quote for the series. <laughs> oh, well, yeah. I no one is agree. reminded about their mortality more than the Baudelaire's. That is very true. Yeah, I love it. Oh, I love that art movement. It's so cool. It's like every cool, evil, goth thing yeah modern goth just imagery it all yeah. comes from this yeah like this the idea of like skeletons you know like moving around and stuff like that's all coming from this like you we, the stuff that kind of seems obvious now but it has to come from somewhere and that's it's really cool it came from yeah from a horrible horrible time and, yeah <laughs> well on that note y'all um <laughs> that's yeah. it for this week please join us next week as we talk about book Six. I can't Six. believe I know. we are this far in the series. Yeah, it's crazy. It's so fun. I'm so excited, though. We're having a great time. Yeah, if you guys are also having a great time with us, be sure to let us know. Uh, rate and subscribe us. Just Chris, subscribe and rate us five stars on Apple and Spotify and whatever else you like to do. If you want to uh, say hi, you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram on the handle at NSYAPod. That's right. And if you guys leave us a five-star review with a couplet, I will. we will read it on our episode. Yeah, so, we will. So do that. I think that'll be fun. Um, and yeah, just uh, thank you guys. Of course, as always, our Theme song was by my friend Alex Moon. We may have some uh, bit of a collab that we might be sharing with you guys uh, soon. Me and Alex doing some music, but that we'll we'll get to that when we get to that. Remember, guys, even though you're gonna die while you're living, don't suck. Don't suck. Bye. Bye. I heard that there is a recent uh, paper published uh, regarding the Black Death as a massive, mm-hmm. um, like, evolution thing in humans, basically pressuring 
the human population oh. like genome essentially so oh, yeah, the yeah, people yeah. that are uh, more likely to survive the black death they had a certain gene that allowed them to survive and right. that gene is associated with more um your immune system kind of overloading and so a lot of uh, autoimmune diseases are associated oh. with that gene so that might be a reason why we have that is so prevalent in Whoa. the human population is due to this so they it saved them for the plague because they had an overactive immune right. system. Right, it, was a, it but, was a natural selection event. Well, because it's a funneling effect where exactly. you, the population gets really narrowed really quickly. Right, but the people that were extremes. able to survive, they survived because they had this gene. But now yeah. the people, then they, you know, now these people with that gene are, it's associated with autoimmune disease. It's fascinating. Yeah, but Elon Musk said science is fake, so I don't think that's real. Well. <laughs> 